Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 32. First book in the Bible, 32nd chapter. Last week we came through chapters 30 and 31, and we saw this interesting and deceitful exchange between Jacob and Laban. And Jacob had to deal with Laban quite a bit in those two chapters, and it wasn't a pleasant experience for him. But Jacob did seem to follow God's lead well, and he removed himself from Laban's home in Padan Aram. Laban actually pursued Jacob and all those with him and caught up with them. And Jacob would have been traveling with this huge flock of animals and all of the men and women involved in taking care of them. So it wouldn't take long for Jacob to actually catch up with the huge group that Jacob was traveling with. And when they met in the mountain of Gerar, I think it was, an arrangement is made between the two parties. And they made this agreement that they would stay on their respective sides of this pile of stones that they fashioned. All right, so it was like a, a boundary that they agreed upon. So they did depart rather peacefully, you know, considering all of the events that led up to that and all the deception on Laban's part. And that brings us into chapter 32. And here we'll see possibly one of the greatest butter-up jobs in history between Jacob and Esau. Laban goes back home. He leaves Jacob to do his thing, and Jacob continues on his journey. Remember, he's en route to Canaan. God had called him while he was with Laban in Padan Aram in Haran and said, go back to the land of your family, that is Canaan, where he had left some 20 years ago. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, I've got a map for you just to orient us. It'll be map two. Ironic, I know it's map two. I decided to throw the first one out. (laughs) Uh, The bulk of these two chapters are going to be taking place right here. Between up north, you can see the Sea of Galilee up by Bashan. And then you've got the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea down south. And we're going to be right in the middle of those two. It says Mahanaim right up there, and that's right off the Jordan River. So all of these events are going to be happening right around that area. And this is on Jacob's way back into Canaan. It says, so Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And remarkably little is said about this encounter Jacob has with the angels. We're not told exactly what this exchange was like. We don't know who said what, but it definitely seems to have made an impression on Jacob because he called the name of that place Mahanaim, and that means camps. And that word is in the dual. And we don't have this specific construct in English. The closest thing that we would have to a dual 
would be the word both. So it, it's plural in the sense that it's more than one camp in this instance, but it's two, and it specifies that. So it would be saying something like double camp, Mahanaim. And we're not really sure why he names it that. It could be a couple of reasons. We'll see later that Jacob actually splits his camp into two camps. It also could mean double company. So he is not only guarded now by his immediate company of the people traveling with him, he's also guarded by the angels that he saw there. So he has double company. It is amazing to me how little is said about that, actually. But then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says. So everybody knows this feeling. I certainly know this feeling. You just left one trouble. You left Laban in Padanaram. You're traveling to where you think everything's going to be great, and all of a sudden you remember, oh yeah, something's waiting for me there. Esau, my hairy brother, is waiting to kill me. So you put one trouble away just to be met with another trouble. He just got rid of Laban, and coming back to Canaan, he remembers why he left there in the first place. His brother was trying to kill him. And he knows that he'll find Esau in Edom, in this land. So he coaches his messengers to deliver a nice message to his brother before he meets up with him. Thus, your servant Jacob says, this is what he's telling his messengers to deliver to Esau. I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob, rightly so, was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, I would imagine that I would also be greatly distressed. Um, They probably should have started that message to Jacob with, now, he doesn't seem to be mad. He actually seems to be in good spirits. However, he is coming to meet you with many, many men. But they don't start it that way. It causes Jacob to be greatly afraid and distressed. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. And this is just good tactics, right? You're splitting up your company, you're taking you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, right? You're splitting it up so that if he attacks one of the groups, the other one can get away. And I guess it was just bad luck for whichever one he chose to attack. Starting in verse 9, Jacob is going to offer what seems to be a very sincere prayer. And it's actually a very good 
model of a prayer that we can use when we're facing difficult circumstances. Now, you have to remember that he's completely freaking out right now. This is a very emotionally charged situation that he's found himself in. This situation is driving him to plead with God. And he's very honest in this prayer about exactly how he's feeling, which is a very good policy for us to adopt when we're talking to God. Just be honest. He knows how you're feeling. Just be honest with him. So in verse 9, Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. You know, look, God, you're the one that promised you would protect me if I came back home. I just hope you didn't forget what you said back there. And no doubt this is more to reassure himself than it is to remind God. And, you know, we shouldn't act like we don't do this. I remind God of things that he's promised. And I know you do too. It really is more for us than it is for him. Right? He doesn't forget the promises he's made. We often pray here that the Holy Spirit would teach us as we dive into his word. That's a common prayer that I pray for us here. And we know that this is something God has promised to a born-again believer, that he will teach us by his spirit. In John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus is speaking, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. It's promised. 1 John 2.20 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. And then down in verse 27, he continues, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. Again, it's promised. The Holy Spirit will teach us as we make ourselves available. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is something that the Bible is so clear about. So why do we have to pray that? It's not like we were trying to petition God to do this for us because we know that he has promised to do that. We know that he will. But asking God to do this aligns our will with his. And that is the objective. That's the goal of our prayer. It's aligning our will with his. Where do we find his will? In scripture. This is his revealed will. Praying aligns our will with his. And we pray to remind ourselves to be sensitive to his voice. And because we genuinely want to hear what he's saying. That's why we pray, God, please teach us through your spirit as we approach your word. And Jacob reminds God that he's made a promise. Not so much because he thinks God forgot about it, but more so because Jacob needs to remind himself. He's reassuring himself that, hey, God has promised this, and I know that he will follow through. 
it's reassuring to play back those promises that God has made to us, especially when we're facing an impossible situation. How reassuring can that be? And Jacob puts himself in the correct perspective here. In verse 10, he says to God, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. And he is completely right about this. And neither are we worthy of the least of all mercies God has shown us. All glory is due him. You know, we can't claim any of that glory for ourselves. He chose the weak of us. And we talked about this last week. He chose the broken vessels to make use of. So all glory is due him. He took Jacob, the supplanter, the heel catcher. And he's working in Jacob's heart and mind. And we've been seeing this change happen in Jacob as he matures. And we'll see the culmination of that change coming in this chapter. He says, For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. The first time he crossed over the Jordan was right after he deceived his father, and he took his brother's blessing. He had done those things. It was in the wake of that that his mother sent him away to Badan Aram, to Laban, for safety. So he was fleeing after he had done his brother wrong, done his dad wrong. He crossed over this Jordan, and all he had was his staff with him. No one was traveling with him. He was alone and fleeing. And now... 20 years later, after dealing with Laban, after finding two wives, two maidservants, and having 11 kids, he's coming back across the Jordan from the other side. I've crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Now bringing back with him all that God has just poured out to him, completely blessed him with. A whole two companies. These are the blessings he's saying he's not worthy of. He's not worthy of these mercies. That's absolutely right. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Again, he's praying God's promises back to him. And no doubt, this is reassuring himself in the process. Now, here's the thing. Jacob finishes this heartfelt prayer. He beds down, and he wakes up the next morning, and he gets to work. He doesn't sit back on the couch and kick his feet up, thinking that God will just smooth everything out for him and pick him up out of the chair, and float him into the promised land. That's not what we see him doing. He gets up and he gets to work. He realized that it was wise and in keeping with God's will 
for him to take what natural precautions were open to him as quickly as possible. Okay? Just praying for God's protection doesn't negate the fact that there are things we can do to help God work. We're not helping in the flesh. We're just doing what is naturally available to us. You could say the common sense things to do. So here he does that. And it's certainly possible and probable that God would use Jacob's preparations to afford him with that protection. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. So he's sending out these waves of gifts ahead of him to his brother Esau. And each one gets to him. The servant delivers the message that he just coached them up on. And Esau would, in theory, be receiving these gifts and be softening his approach to Jacob with each gift. That's the idea. Again, best butter-up job you've ever seen. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And these presents were, in truth, a little bit more than just buttering Esau up. There's a little bit more to it than that. It would have actually been a way for Jacob to communicate to Esau that he wasn't coming for his wealth. He already had enough. He wasn't coming to take anything that Esau had. That would have been the message that was sent with these gifts. And by referring to himself as Esau's servant in this message, Jacob was also telling him that he wasn't there for political conquest. Rather, he respected Esau's place in the land. My Lord Esau, I am your servant Jacob. There's respect there. So I'm sure that Esau was concerned that Jacob would come with the intent to lay claim to the land that was allotted to him for inheritance. That was probably Esau's concern because he had caught wind that Jacob was coming. It wasn't a small troop of people coming into the land. This may have eased his concerns a bit. 
And the vantage point that we have on this story is really unique because we know exactly what's about to happen. I mean, if you've read ahead, you know what's going to happen. Jacob and Esau didn't know what was going to happen. They're living this out moment by moment. And our vantage point is interesting because we can see that God already had this situation worked out even before Jacob sent these presents to Esau. It actually doesn't seem like the presents did a whole lot as far as changing Esau's mind. Esau doesn't even accept these gifts that were offered. He does after a little coaxing. But he says, no, you keep them. I I have enough myself. So it seems his heart was already in that place of acceptance towards Jacob. I do wonder how many times God has already put a solution into motion for something that we're still worried about. And there's no way we could know. I just wonder. Now that doesn't mean to stop praying for it. It doesn't mean to stop asking God, petitioning Him for things that you really want or, you know, situations. You find yourself in a pickle. God, what am I going to do here? He likes to hear from you. And again, prayer is aligning our will with His. We certainly want to pray in His will. So the present went over before Him, but He Himself lodged that night in the camp. Jacob stayed back and let the droves of gifts go ahead of Him to Esau. Verse 22 says, And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Now, I'll point you back to this map up there when you, where you see Mahanaim, They're about in the middle of your screen. It's just east of the Jordan River. And the Jabbok, it was a stream that fed into the Jordan River from the east. So it was going right by Mahanaim into the Jordan River. If you see the inn, the last inn of Canaan up there, it's right in that area. So that's where they are at the ford of Jabbok, emptying into the Jordan River. He sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Now, though the text doesn't say so explicitly, it suggests that Jacob crossed over the Jabbok with his family to get them settled into their camp. And then once everyone was situated, he then retreated back to the side that he started on to camp himself. And so he was left alone for the night. And when he was alone, of course, I'm sure he started a fire for protection, for warmth. He's sitting there. He's drifting off to sleep. The fire's crackling, and every time he hears a little crunch in the sand or something shifting off in the distance, he thinks, it's Harry. He's coming to get me. 
He's on edge. He is absolutely on edge. And as he's drifting off to sleep, a hand reaches out and grabs him. And in a moment, he finds himself in a struggle with another man. You know, if that was me, there wouldn't be a whole lot of struggle because I'd be frozen on the floor. I'd be so scared. But he struggles with this man. Verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, now we want to get this straight. Pay attention to the capitalizations of the he's. That will guide you down the right path to help keep all of this clear in your mind. Now when he, the man, who we know is God, saw that he, God, did not prevail against him, Jacob, he, God, touched the socket of his, Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, God said, let me go, for the day breaks. They're wrestling all night long. They're going at it. And this word wrestle in the Hebrew, this is the only place that it's used in Scripture. And it means dust or dirt. The idea is that God wrestled Jacob into the dust, into the dirt. Very interesting. And God said, let me go for the day breaks. Jacob was a stubborn guy, especially by this point. But he said, so Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, Jacob, supplanter. And he said, your name shall no longer be called supplanter, but Israel, governed by God. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Now, as we look at this passage, first of all, it's strange. It seems strange to us. And the first question that we usually ask is, well, who is this guy wrestling with Jacob? He seems to show up out of nowhere and start going at it. That's a good question. Some take this account as nothing more than a metaphor for the spiritual struggle within Jacob. But it's clear, just looking at the text, that this was meant by the author, probably originally Jacob himself, and then later edited by Moses. It was meant by the writer to be understood literally. 
This was a, an actual event that took place in Jacob's life. Of course, there is some underlying spiritual meaning. There is an allegorical level to it, but that does not preclude the fact that these are real events happening in our physical world. There was a physical reality to this. And further, there is no mention of it being either a dream or a vision. Whoever this was, he appeared as a man in physical form. And the identity of the wrestler is clearly indicated in the text, in the passage itself. The man says in verse 28, For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So he struggled with God. We know that. And in verse 30, Jacob calls the place Peniel because there he saw God face to face. And the name Peniel means face of God. So there's no doubt in my mind that this man wrestling with Jacob was God himself. But God is spirit. How can he wrestle with Jacob in a physical body? And of course, this was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. This is another one of these Christophanies, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Hosea also provides some commentary on this passage for us, and he also says that this was God. Hosea 12, 3 through 4 and we mentioned this briefly a couple Sundays ago, but we're going to look at it here. Hosea 12, 3 through 4 reads, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. Now that's another key insight that Hosea gives us. He wept and he sought favor from him. And the experts in Hebrew, which I am not, say that the way this is constructed in the Hebrew, it's saying that he wept and sought favor from him during the struggle. It wasn't afterwards. It was while he was wrestling with God. And in the struggle, God knows something is changing and something is solidifying in Jacob's heart. He had come to the place of emptying. Jabak means emptying. I'm, I'm sure that it was named after you know its literal function of emptying into the Jordan, but I'm sure that it's also not an accident here. Jacob comes to this place of emptying. He's being poured out in this struggle. All of his strength in the flesh is being spent. He had come to the end of his own strength. Is that not where God takes us to sanctify us? A place of emptying. Twenty years earlier at Bethel, Jacob found belief. Now it's here at Jabbok that he finds sanctification. 
At Bethel, he found faith. At Jabbok, he finds the behavior of a believer in the wrestling. At Bethel, he found salvation. But at the place of emptying, he finds brokenness. Isn't this interesting? The process God takes each of us through in our sanctification. It's right here. We come to him in faith as a child, and maybe not physically as a child, but certainly spiritually, we come to him as a child. And that's only the beginning. One of the problems we see today, which absolutely will throttle the effectiveness of the church, and does, we see these 40-year-old Christian babies The moment we come to Christ, the growth stops. This is what we're seeing. We sit back and kick our feet up because we're saved. We've got the fire insurance, and we're good. We kick our feet up and don't worry about growing. There's not this emphasis on growing in relationship with Christ. Please imagine this. You're 40 years old. And you go out to eat with your mom. And it's a special occasion. So you go somewhere nice. You go to a steakhouse. They sit you down at your table. They take your drink order. And you're having a great time. Your mom is the only one that orders a meal. She gets a steak. And the waiter thinks it's a bit strange that you don't order anything. It's a late lunch. You should be hungry. But when he comes back, With your mom's food, he finds you curled up in your mother's lap, and she's feeding you from a bottle. Something wrong with this picture, right? There's something wrong with that. And it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. A 40-year-old man or woman should have matured past the stage of drinking from a bottle to receive their sustenance. They should be able to feed themselves. They should be ordering solid food, steaks, something meaty, hearty, nutritious. They shouldn't be depending on others for their sustenance. And if you've been following Christ for 40 years and you find yourself unable to sustain yourself spiritually, You need to reevaluate and find a path that will deepen your relationship with him, moving from the milk to the solid food. And to be honest, this is a, a great thing. We don't see this problem that much in communities that focus on exegetical text based teaching. And that's one of the reasons I love teaching the Bible verse by verse. If you spend time in God's word, you will connect with him on a deeper level. You will get to know him in a deeper way and grow in that relationship with him. If you just read Christian-based books, by the way, I love Christian books, but if that takes the place of God's word, then we come into issues. 
It's just like you'll grow in friendship the more, you, more time you spend with your friend. That relationship will deepen as you hang out more. Our relationship starts with Christ when we invite him to sit on the throne of our life. But it does not end there. And that is not the culmination of our Christian experience. He leads us on the path of becoming more like Christ. We call that process sanctification. That's exactly what we see happening in Jacob's life as he wrestles here with God. There's a struggle. Jesus never promises an easy life after you come into a relationship with him. In fact, he promises the opposite. He promises hardship. He promises tribulation in the general sense. You're going to come on to hardships. That is a promise from Christ. You know, we always talk about leaning on the promises of God. How's that one for you? You're going to be challenged. You're going to come into wrestling matches. You're going to struggle. You know, Spurgeon, I like what Spurgeon said. He says, dead men don't wrestle. It's a proof of life. If you're still able to struggle, you're still able to put up a fight, congratulations. You're alive. And you're alive with Christ. He will lead us on that path of becoming more like his son. That's what's happening in Jacob's life. He's learning to let go of his strength in the flesh and rely on God's provision for his life. He is, in effect, becoming more Christ-like. If Christ is anything, you know, he is dependent on the Father. He acts not according to his own will. He simply does what the Father would do. That is the model that he sets for us, and Jacob is becoming more and more like Christ. Let's look at these verses when God changes Jacob's name. It's 27 and 28. 27, so he said to him, God says to Jacob, what is your name? And he replies, Jacob. All those years earlier, Jacob's dad asked him the same question. What's your name? Who are you, really? He replied, Esau, your oldest son. And he, God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. He's no longer the supplanter. He's no longer using his own strength, his own conniving ways, but now he is governed by God. He's learned to let go of his strength in the flesh and lean on God, both in the spiritual allegorical sense, leaning on God, and since his encounter, in a very real physical sense, he has to lean on his staff. He's traded his own strength for God's strength. 
And this is a journey that each one of us are on. And even though Jacob's name was the one changed, God wants to govern each of our lives. And he takes each of us through this sanctification process that increases our dependence on him. He doesn't make us more and more independent. He makes us more and more dependent. And I absolutely despise this popular saying that God will never give you anything you can't handle. Where is that? No, he absolutely will give you more than you can handle. And that's so you depend on him. It's not more than he can handle. Sanctification, that process that we go through, that wrestling, increases our dependence on him. Therefore, verse 32, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Moses, the editor, we'll say, for lack of a better term, of Genesis, inserts this note that they still don't eat the muscle of the hip socket in Israel. This was not something that was commanded by God. But it is in their mind for the remembrance of Jacob's encounter with God. To keep it front of mind what God did through Jacob, through Israel. Now we come to chapter 33. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. And there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. It's a concerning sight for Jacob. They still haven't made up at this point. All he sees is Esau, this big burly man, barreling towards him, probably picking up speed as he gets closer, and 400 men behind him. So what does Jacob do? So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. He divides up the wives and kids, and notice this order that he puts them in. It's really least loved to most loved. The maids go in front with their kids, then Leah's family, then Rachel and Joseph bring up the rear. Those are the ones that Jacob cared for the most. But, not to be too hard on him here, because there is a shepherd hiding somewhere down there. Down in his heart, there's a shepherd. He takes the lead himself with his family, his little flock following behind him. Then he crossed over before them. So that's good on him. He's taken the lead. And bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So as he approaches his brother, Jacob is taking every opportunity to appease him, to cool him down in his mind. And again, we've heard the story and we know how it ends. But what is Jacob seeing and thinking as Esau starts to pick up speed towards him? He's, he's bowing, Esau's running at him, please be nice, please be nice. But Esau ran to meet him. 
for all we know, he's thinking, great, I just sent all these gifts, all these flocks and herds that I have, they're all going to be wasted. Plus, he's going to kill me, take my stuff, take my family, and everything is going to be lost. Is that what he was thinking? Or was he just praying one of those frantic prayers? Just repeating to God, you said you would protect me. You said you would protect me. Please don't forget me. I'm right here. Esau's coming at me. We don't know. We don't know what he was thinking or doing in this situation. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. A huge sigh of relief. And fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. His relief is shown outwardly when they embrace. He starts to cry. He weeps. And they both do. No doubt this flood of emotions caused this emotional outburst, this weeping. And on Esau's side, he seems to be so glad that he got the opportunity to reconcile with his brother. And the conversations that follow, I I can't imagine. You know, Esau saying to Jacob, man, you've missed so much. Dad is away, he's, he's down there, and I think he's in Hebron at this point. Mom has passed away. You know, Jacob never gets to see his mother again after he departed. For 20 years he was away and comes back to that news. What kind of conversations did they share? Verse 5, and he lifted his eyes, Esau did, and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. You have to hand it to him here because Jacob really gets this right the children whom God has graciously given your servant. It seems he's getting life in the right view. He's seeing clearly. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. They're all paying respects to Esau. Then Esau says, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, Jacob said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Esau sounds very cordial here. And they seem to be getting along quite well, and they both seem genuinely happy to see each other. But we do see a difference in what Esau says And what Jacob replies with. So Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, and Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. 
What's the big difference there between what Esau says to Jacob and Jacob says to Esau? They're both being gracious to the other. But Esau makes no mention of God in his life. Jacob attributes his blessings to God. In this, we see that these men still fit the labels that they earned several chapters ago. Esau is the carnally minded one. He talks about his possessions, but never mentions God. He only mentions that he has enough. And Jacob is the spiritually minded one. He gives God the glory for what he has. So Esau takes the gifts of the flocks from Jacob after a little bit of urging on Jacob's part. And Jacob knows that peace is secured when Esau accepts these gifts. That was a cultural thing. That was the custom. When the gift was accepted, peace was secured. God had indeed provided for Jacob. He had provided for his safety. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Jacob tells Esau that his children and animals are too weak to continue traveling at the pace that they had been. And he says, and if the men should drive them hard one day, the idea is one more day, then all the flock will die. So now that the tensions were eased, Jacob and his companies could take a breath. He wants to let them catch up on some rest before going any further. So he urges Esau to go on, go at your faster pace. And Jacob and his company would take some time to let the kids and the flocks regain their strength. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau's offering to leave some men with Jacob for his protection. That's what's happening. But Jacob's main concern, safety-wise, was Esau himself. And that has now been smoothed over. That's no longer a concern for him. So it seems that that issue is resolved. Jacob doesn't feel endangered anymore. Of course, there were still the locals to contend with, the Canaanites and the tribes. Um, But it seems that Jacob readily trusts God for his protection now. And these last few verses of chapter 33 give us an important perspective on how we as believers should relate to unbelievers. Okay, And I know we're getting towards the end, but stick with me for a few more minutes because this is really, really informative. Many of us do struggle when it comes to how we relate to unbelievers. How close do we let ourselves get to them? 
how good of a friend do we make them to ourselves? You know, we always talk about it in marriage, but 2 Corinthians says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And marriage is a perfectly good application of that text. But I believe there is a little more. And Jacob helps us model here how we are to contend with this issue. Very pertinent issue. Back in verse 14, Jacob said, I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and seer. We see in verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So Esau goes back to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. So he settles down in Sukkoth. Esau travels to Seir, but Jacob, in the opposite direction, back north to Sukkoth, very near Penuel, where he wrestled with God. Now, we're going to keep map two up for just a second. And I want you to look in the middle. We talked about Mahanaim, right by that last inn of Canaan. Right around there was Penuel. You see Sukkoth, just like a couple inches north of that on the screen. Sukkoth is right along the Jordan River, north. Now we'll go to map three. Up there in the top right of the screen is Canaan. That's where we were zoomed in on just a second ago. We've now zoomed out to include Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula, a little bit of Midian down there. And you see where we were in Canaan. That's the Dead Sea up there. If you go south and just a little bit west, you come to that other body of water. The Dead Sea going down about halfway to that southern body of water is Seir. That's where Esau goes to, from up north, from the Penuel area. So Esau goes south. If we go back to the other map, map two, Jacob goes just north to Sukkoth, and he, he actually kind of settles down there. He builds a house. And that's the first time that we've heard any of these patriarchs building a house. So what in the world is going on here? Well, we know that Jacob wanted to give some R&R time to his flocks and the kids. It seems that that was better pasture land to let the flocks graze. So he just shoots up there real quick, lets them have their feast on the grass. But it's really interesting because back in 14, we saw Jacob saying something like he was going to meet Esau in Seir. And then he totally disregards that plan and goes up to Sukkoth, and he stays there for eight to ten years. Seems like Jacob is not staying true to his word, right? What if in 14, when he says, I'll meet up with you down in Seir, what does he really say? He says, until I come to my Lord in Seir, What if he's not saying, I'll follow you there, but he's saying, I'll come visit you there? That seems to fit better with the text and better with our characters here because Jacob is acting wisely. 
He does not follow Esau down south towards Egypt, which we know is a very pertinent type in the Bible of the world. He does not follow his unbelieving brother down south. He separates himself from Esau. He doesn't set up camp with him. Jacob models the way that we should relate to unbelievers. He's cordial. He's polite and he's respectful. He's even friendly. But he doesn't make camp with his unbelieving brother. He doesn't tie himself to Esau. He doesn't yoke himself with Esau. I mean, he just left Laban, who was an idolater, an unbeliever. Why would he leave one unbeliever, shake off his yoke, just to go to another? No, Jacob acts wisely. He rightly separates himself, puts some distance between his brother and him. There's nothing in here that says that they, they wouldn't have visited each other. And that's awesome. You know, we, <laughs> we talked on Thursday about going to a monastery, just living in a monastery. You know, why don't we all just do that? It would be a whole lot easier, probably, maybe. But what you do when you move away and you isolate yourself is you effectively dampen your witness. You don't come in contact with anyone who needs to learn about Jesus. You hide the good news that you've been delivered. It's like we were talking about earlier. I'm good, so I'm going to go sit over here and just keep to myself and go to heaven when I die. That's not how we're supposed to relate to unbelievers. We are supposed to be friends, you know, be friends with them. However, there is a distinction between someone who you confide in, who you can really tell your struggles to, you can commiserate with them. Someone like that needs to be grounded in God's word. They need to be able to offer you advice that's godly, that is straight from the text. 2 Corinthians 6 14 through 16. I'm sorry, we're going to go to 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Again, it's often applied to marriage, and that's a good application, but there are others. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, so in light of what he just said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In it, not of it. We are to be a light to the world. We are not to be of the world. It's just like a ship in the ocean. The believer is floating on an ocean that is unsteady. 
even rough at times. And the world is the ocean. We are right smack dab in the middle of it. And we're being tossed around, but that's okay. This is where we've been placed. And we've been designed to handle this with God's help. The problem is not the ship in the ocean. The problem is when the ocean is in the ship. When a hole gets punched in the hole and the ocean starts getting in the ship, it weakens it. It drags it down. And ultimately, if nothing is done about it, it sinks. It's no longer effective at its purpose, which was to float and haul cargo or people, whatever it is. The problem is not the ship in the ocean. The problem is the ocean in the ship. And that's exactly what we see with Jacob. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians. It's consistent. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's our directive. Let's do that this week. As we go back into our lives, back into our jobs, school, whatever God has placed in front of you, there will be opportunities. And you can pray for these opportunities where you can share the light. You can share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gift that we've all been given. I don't know how we as Christians can just sit back and receive this gift without letting anyone else know about it. You know, if you were standing in the middle of a road with your best friend and there was a bus pummeling towards you at 90 miles an hour, you saw the bus and your friend didn't, why, you wouldn't just run out of the way, let your friend get smacked with the bus You'd say, hey man, there's a bus coming. Get out of the way. You would tell them because you know something. And if they don't get it straight, something bad's going to happen. That, but so much worse, is in store for every one of us if we do not have Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Let's keep that in the, the front of our minds this week. Please pray with me as we close.